Welcome to the Visegrad Inside podcast from Central Europe on Central Europe. I'm Christopher Walker, Vice President for Studies and Analysis at the National Endowment for Democracy, and I recommend the excellent work of Visegrad Insight. Hello, everyone. It's the 25th of October, and it's sunny and cold in Warsaw today. My name is Kamil Jaranczyk. I'm the Managing Editor at Visegrad Insight, and I'm here with... Ah, Wojciech Przybylski, Editor-in-Chief, Visegrad Insight. Hello. Yes, um, uh, speaking about the weather and that it's cold, uh, currently the European Union, uh, especially in Central Europe, is going through a bit of a gas price, uh, crisis due to um, the lack of uh, gas storage and uh, the advancingly cold temperatures. Well, l let's uh, put it bluntly, this is because of Gazprom policy and Putin's policy to, uh, to shorten the supplies and that has been uh, in effect uh, for a number of months now. Um, resulting in in the shortages in the storages across Europe, and um, uh, very very much now putting on the uh, on the edge the situation with uh, gas energy security uh, across the region. Yeah, and it's nothing new. Um, this isn't some new policy that Gazprom came up with. In fact, uh, in uh, in uh, the history, it actually led to a bit of a revival of sorts. Yes. Well, yeah, we we could say that in two thousand and eight, when uh, yeah, Russia was. Uh, cutting off gas supply to Ukraine and then effectively to the rest of Europe, especially Central Europe, was hit hard. This was a revival. If you if you uh, speak on, on, uh, on about revival, this was a revival of the Visegrad Group cooperation. This is where Central Europeans coordinated on the um, on the European grounds. They actually found. Uh, the usefulness of a Visegrad group that at that point was virtually. Well, there was there was some technical cooperation that that didn't have a European purpose, and because of this, collaborated uh, lobbying and pushing and 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 using the Visegrad platform in the EU that actually uh, brought back and redefined the cooperation around the European Union. But now it's becoming very difficult to imagine the same sort of revival. I mean, maybe it's even more necessary now, but it's even harder to to imagine, especially if you, if we uh, stick to the political circumstances and exactly as you said, uh, Morawiecki visit in Strasbourg um, uh, gives a uh, sense of uh, of what's missing. Yes, um, but uh, the reason why Gazprom uh, this time is um, is playing with the uh, gas markets, uh, it's um, because of most likely it's because of Nord Stream two and uh, the fact that uh, while the pipe has been built, it still hasn't gotten regulation and gas cannot flow through Nord Stream 2 yet. And Russia is definitely playing on that. Uh, we see that um, that in Moldova, the state of emergency has actually been introduced because they cannot get uh, enough gas uh, flowing from Gazprom. They're going to uh, send uh, two uh, high, higher ups from the government in order to try and negotiate a new uh, contract with Gazprom. But uh, up until then, the state of emergency allows uh, uh, Moldova to buy gas uh, in any in any way in any ways and through any means necessary. Yeah, I, it's interesting that you mentioned Moldova and that uh, the situation is more severe for the countries that are not part of the EU uh, because they do not have enough interconnectedness uh, through you know through the hardware through interconnectors on the borders, and uh, also these are much more vulnerable states. Moldova, as as we mentioned, Moldova now. Is a is a country that has undergone very successful pro-European uh, elections. I mean, elections that that have resulted 
in electing pro-European government uh, executive and legislative branch are now full, uh, fully supportive of the uh, reforms that might end up for Moldova in a road towards the EU, let's say. Um, and that is definitely something that uh, Vladimir Putin doesn't like. Of course. And so that's the, the strategic element uh, and, and the element of also geographic intimidation uh, that, that Russia uh, that Russia usually uh, does with its neighbors. Exactly. And uh, of course, uh, President Maya Sandu has um, criticized Russia for its role in the Transnistria conflict um, and, uh, of course, uh, has been uh, conducting uh, anti-corruption campaign in Moldova. Um, but moving on to their neighbors, uh, where the, their main supply of gas, which is Ukraine. Um, Ukraine has been um, has offered a 50% reduction in transit fees uh, to um, entice Gazprom, basically, to send more gas um, to Europe. Yes, the, the, that's that's what we see. Definitely, is important for uh, for Ukraine. And many countries are going to 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 look into prospects of better integrated systems. I think at the end of the day, this is what we're going to see: more integration with the uh, European uh, system. So, so it's it's really. Well, the long-term strategy is not very advantageous for Russia, but on, on the short run, this is where they uh, apparently want to seal the deals, just like with Hungary uh, very recently. They use the opportunity and close the deals on uh, 15 years of delivery of, of their uh, of their supplies. Um, that comes also with a political price. Of course, of course, exactly. Hungary has sort of, uh, doesn't have issues with Russian gas due to their um, negotiations with uh, Russia to uh, circumvent Ukraine, um, uh, for, uh, further uh, isolating or the need for Ukraine to uh, be a transit country uh, for Gazprom through S Serbia and through uh, Austria and through uh, uh, the promise of Nord Stream 2 gas coming through Austria to Hungary. Uh, yeah, and this situation has been uh, of course, underreported across the region, but fortunately, we we can send uh, our readers, our listeners, to to the website where uh, there's a number of pieces that we have published over the last month, uh, exactly for, uh, forecasting the closure on the deal with Hungary. We've we've reported on how close the deal was when it was coming, what are the political implications. And also we reported what Bulgaria has been doing in the in terms of of energy security with our reporters um, in, in Bulgaria analyzing the situation uh, in the light of what seemed to be a Bulgarian turn towards uh, pro-Western angle in in building up the future of their energy security. That was a report provided by Ogi. Yes, uh, our reporter, our colleague reporter from Bulgarian Capital Weekly. Okay, maybe we move now, uh, as we spoke about the, the the strength of Central European response and coordinated response, what Europe can do. I mean, most of the voices say Europe cannot do much. However, I would disagree that very much depends on the political positions and especially the, the future German position in these negotiations. As we we know, the Greens have put uh, Nord Stream 2 um, high up on the agenda. They oppose uh, opening Nord Stream 2, uh, starting its operations as part of negotiations. Well, let's see if that is actually um, a point that is tradable in the uh, in the coalition uh, negotiations, which is looking to be a traffic light coalition, which is going to be exactly SPD and FDP and the Greens, 
or is it a, a point of principle um, which would really turn the tide in um, not only German politics internally, but definitely the uh, external relations and the outlooks of, of German politics and the rest of uh, not only Central Europe, but Europe overall. So that is very interesting and very impactful for Central Europe. Of course, the response across the EU is, well, we have to wait and see. Uh, Putin, Putin is sending and he's uh, essentially communicating what he intends to do. He's, he's confirming uh, that he's blackmailing uh, Europe in in the uh, you know in the gloves, uh, but still that is that is being um, that is being the line of of Kremlin right now. And speaking of Central European unity and impact on EU affairs, it seems that the Visegrad group is the weakest uh, in comparison to 2008. Uh, also, much because of uh, how. Poland and Polish government has been uh, playing or not playing along uh, with the European politics. In by 2008, four years after the enlargement, uh, the Visegrad group countries were uh, were the the darlings of the transformation. And even though their voices were disregarded, disrespected, even we might say by uh, politicians across the board from bigger countries, especially from France, they were building up um, their voice and their diplomatic effort in coordination and in close contact on the on the approach uh, to Brussels. Um, now it seems that Poland especially speaks completely different language, but Hungary as well, completely different language with the, the uh, institutions uh, that it would try and should try to influence to shape uh, better policies. Uh, in 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 Europe, Mr. Morawiecki's speech last uh, week in in Strasbourg, where he basically asked uh, to be present and to deliver his remarks, uh, his address to the Parliament, was primarily seen as awkward. I think mm. the the words that he used were um, not seeking to to stop the conflict, but uh, they were. Uh, they were very. Uh, he was accusing the EU of not being fair, mm. of not understanding each other. I mean, th that kind of voc vocabulary and that kind of phrasing has been heard already from Viktor Orban before. But interestingly, it was also heard from the former Prime Minister Beata Szydło mm. just before she was stepping down. Yeah. She went to Brussels in a way to. Uh, to uh, to speak out against the Brussels elite uh, before it was obvious that she cannot deliver as prime minister for her party um, in in building any sort of relationship with the EU. That's very interesting now that Mr. Morawiecki, who was seen as the envoy of Mr. Kaczynski to Europe, uh, while Mr. Kaczynski would focus on party and domestic politics, is now repeating the same and stepping into the same shoes as the former uh, former. Um, uh, Prime Minister, the uh, European Parliament and the Commission were very fierce. I think this is a, this you could even call it a historic moment last week when uh, when the Parliament lashed out uh, the majority of the Parliament except the pro-Russians. Uh, they all lashed out at uh, uh, Polish government uh, position. They demanded stronger position from the Commission, and indeed Ursula von der Leyen was giving an ultimatum. Uh, in public to the Polish government to implement the rulings of the AJC um, concerning uh, the, mm, the disciplinary chamber of the Supreme Court. And what we heard and what we uh, heard from Mr. Marewski last week is something that is now 
um, I think he was basically reading his notes. He wasn't responsive and he wasn't expecting such a fierce response. But now, um, only today we read his comments. We also over the weekend had some comments from Mr. Kaczynski where they realized there will be a fierce opposition uh, to this government's policies of defying uh, EU rule of law. And they are signaling that they will, by the end of the year, definitely change um, change the institutional setup in Poland. Now, in Poland, the discussion is, and Mr. Kaczynski has been saying that he would um, essentially change the whole system of uh, judiciary in Poland, uh, limiting the powers of the Supreme Court, expelling most of the judges, you know, uh, another revolution. But it seems to me, and not uh, not only to me, but we've been reading a lot uh, through through the week and also the analysis coming up from uh, various sources, journalistic and, uh, and, and legal analysts, which underline that Mr. Kaczynski and his party does not have the strength to carry that out. First, they do not coordinate with a uh, president who we may think whatever he, about him, uh, but he's an uh, independent element in in uh, in his uh, institutional autonomy as a mm-hmm. president coming from a popular vote. Without a chance of re-election. Uh, without a chance of re- re-election. He hasn't proven to be um, a very righteous, I would say, or um, autonomous as a person, but still on a couple of points before when certain... Uh, certain um, Uh, regulations were to be introduced also in the judiciary elements, he was intervening. Um, Not that his interventions were that good after all, but still he was derailing uh, some of the government plans. So we don't see by now any coordination effort with the chancellery of the um, president between the the government and the president. And also the, the majority in the parliament is not secured. Mr. Kaczynski does not have the numbers, although he has a slight majority, but he doesn't have within that majority um, all of people, all of his uh, MPs convinced that he should do what he should do. Uh, importantly, he has about 18 MPs of Mr. Jobro, Minister of Justice, who uh, who is the uh, derailing element yeah. of Polish uh, politics, both domestic and uh, foreign believer. policy. I, I'm not sure he's a true believer, <laughs> but he's definitely his his friends are the enemies of Poland, uh, and we know that from uh, from his previous coalitions with the European Parliament, with you know with all the coalition members uh, that included Nigel Farage, uh, all all the other weirdos of European politics, um, to with whom Mr. Jean- had no no problem flirting before before he was repatriated to PIS uh, party. So um, th- that is very worrying signal, and it's very worrying both uh, domestically. Um, but there is some hope and optimism because uh, it seems that the government does not have powers to uh, do more damage. It will be, however, painful for the political scene and the executive powers of the government to deal with the ongoing crisis are getting limited. Uh, it, it is positioning Poland on a vis-a-vis Europe on a collision course. Uh, but most importantly, from the point of view of uh, you know our uh, uh, editorial office and uh, from our fellow analysts, it's that uh, this is limiting the options of regional cooperation because with such a weakened Poland, the regional cooperation is hardly sustainable. 
I mean, we knew that and we've reported on that before, but, but it is the high or the lowest point rather than the highest. This is the lowest point of where the regional cooperation uh, can go if Poland is undermining itself to this, uh, to this uh, point where we are today in the EU. The whole of V4, the, the promise of Visegrad Group Cooperation, any other three C's initiative that we also um, um, see the, the, the merits of this uh, regional cooperation that includes also energy security. Of course. Yeah. It all depends on the strength and also the position of the countries, uh, the respect they enjoy, their administrations, uh, effectiveness and diplomacy effectiveness within EU. And now Poland is undermining all of that after so many years and so, so big investment that we that we have made. So uh, in a way, best, uh, best recommendation, wait and see. The expectation is the Polish government will withdraw, they will cancel the disciplinary chamber, they will be big mouthing about patriotic, nationalistic, sovereignist uh, uh, principles. But at the end of the day, they will cave in and mm. they, they will adopt uh, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the rulings of the AGC and they will avoid the, the most disastrous conflict uh, with, within the EU we could expect. But uh, Camille, maybe uh, the, the, the last remarks should be devoted to what else is in the pipeline. What are we planning to publish this week? Yeah, so this week we are planning to publish um, um great text on the Bulgarian position in Moldova. Um, that uh, will be quite uh, explainer as the issue has still not been resolved, um, uh, but uh, the demands maybe have become more clear over the time. And we will also be publishing a text by uh, German Carbonari about um, uh, Belarus and uh, sort of explaining the situation uh, within Belarus and why um, it, it looks the way that it does. Oh, yes. And as for a number of uh, years, we've been looking uh, towards Belarus and we've been analyzing the situation, I think we should not lose sight of that. And with the all of neighborhoods being very uh, in very uh, perilous situation, Belarus is uh, in our uh, mind, to, to our minds, one of the key elements to look at. And it's also the the most underreported um, country in the whole neighborhood of, of the EU. While we know, of course, there, there are security risks, there are very serious security risks um, when we look at the border, when we look at the human rights uh, violation, when we are also observing political changes that are ongoing inside the country. Exactly. So a uh, lot, lot to see. And uh, now we will uh, turn to an interview with... With uh, Chris Walker, uh, the director uh, at the National Endowment for Democracy, uh, Director for Research and Vice President of the uh, National Endowment for Democracy. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Uh, we we just read your fantastic analysis, actually very worrying analysis, on what's going on with the international, with the liberal world order and how autocrats, especially Russia, but also to a certain degree or considerable degree, also China, are trying to abstract, but also rewrite the, uh, the operating language of the international, key international institutions that have been protecting um, democracies um, and promoting also democracy principles and values across the world. So, uh, last uh, last week we had uh, Russia withdraw from uh, withdraw its diplomats from the NATO mission, ending uh, a period in which there was an effort to build bridges r across the international institutions rather than to uh, put up walls. 
And you pointed in your article for Just Security, entitled Appetite for Obstruction, How Autocrats Subvert Democracy Infrastructure, you point out also to another subversive um, uh, action by Russian government to block annual human rights meeting by OSCE. And starting from that point, you elaborate on the implications for not only OSCE, but many other international organizations that are pillars of the international order. So, Chris, um, let's start with that. And, and I'll ask you, what is at stake? What are we looking at, uh, you know, from looking, kind of stepping back and looking at the big picture? So, Wojciech, first of all, thanks so much for the invitation to speak with you. Uh, I really appreciate it. And as you, as you note, I think the... Um, effort by the Russian authorities last month to block the uh, human dimension implementation meeting in Warsaw, which is really one of the key opportunities for a wide range of groups, including the non-governmental sector, to come and speak on critical human rights and democracy issues with the world's largest uh, regional security entity, the OSCE, in that context. The fact that this was blocked, I think, is a symptom of a longer standing challenge to the rules of the road that so many people thought would be fairly clear coming out of the 1990s. But over the years, the determined efforts by non-democratic powers to both obstruct but progressively reshape these mechanisms has become much clearer. And as you note, um, it's both within uh, a really important and terrific institution like the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, but it's true in so many other bodies where the tension that has emerged in the recent past really requires us to think hard about how democracies can safeguard and fortify their own rules as we pursue um, systems that are more accountable and transparent and more responsive to their citizens. I think what the autocrats are doing is really staking a claim to set the rules uh, themselves. And I think this is something we have to purposefully contest and be very mindful about how we go, go about defending uh, and affirming democratic rules that uh, these organizations are supposed to safeguard. Can you explain uh, kind of the, the, the logic and the steps uh, we have we have seen in the in the last years. You know, if you if you wanted to point to, to to the examples, what would be the illustration of that process? Sure. So so I think the way to start in response to your question is to is to remind our listeners that uh, certainly in the transatlantic context, and as I note in, in the Just Security article, the OSCE was really building upon a 1990s consensus. On demo, that, that democratic accountability, security, and stability are integrally linked. What's happened over time, however, is that in the case of the OSCE, um, the government of Russia, but in the case of the United Nations, for example, Russia and China and other authoritarian regimes have really tried to neuter or remove from the equation the democracy and human rights component and focus on what are their preferences, which tend to be much more transactional, much less focused on um, values and principles that would enhance accountability, that would permit, for example, non-governmental actors some meaningful participation in the process and in decision-making. And that purposeful approach by the autocrats over time has really thrown a wrench into so many of these mechanisms. I think for... 
the democracies, there's been a bit of complacency. There's been a lack of strategy to both shine a light on the actions of the autocrats as a way to safeguard and reaffirm what should be um, the democracy and human rights components of these institutions. And now we're at the point where um, these autocrats feel emboldened enough in the case of the OSCE to block certain meetings, kind of using and abusing the um, consensus-based arrangement in the organizations on the one hand. And then to take it a step further, uh, China in particular has um, frankly started to remake some of the key entities, especially within the UN system, and in particular in the sort of rule setting and the regulations that will govern modern technologies, which will really be definitive in how societies operate in the future. Let's focus exactly now on uh, what are the ways, or and, and you propose several of those ways how to how to address the, how to address this issue. You write and you underline in, in your conclusions of, of the article the need to stand by the principles, ideas to to fight for them. Ideas have consequences in the postmodern world. Uh, it, it even even more serious consequences that that we have imagined. Uh, after all. The ideas shape the reality of um, of of the institutional order of any democratic order. So this is one point. Then you um, you argue for the increased participation of civil society organizations in uh, all forms and even new international bodies, those that focus on tech, those that focus on telecommunications. So this purpose of being involved uh, expands. And this is, this is an element that I think you underline uh, that also goes very much in uh, our thinking and our recommendations to create a civil society forum to the Three Cs Initiative, another institution, international organization, or not, not even an organization, but a collaboration of democracies in Central Eastern Europe to, in, to install and to bring forward the discussion on democratic security. But I wanted also to, so I, I definitely wanted to uh, ask you, how, how do you imagine this is happening? And maybe you can point to some, some concrete examples, but also wanted to, I wanted to highlight here and ask you about what about this summit for democracies? What is to be expected of that? Because there is uh, undoubtedly the, the main flagship initiative that we now see from US uh, that also seems to be going in the same direction. So linking uh, your questions together, I think that the summit for democracy, which is planned for this December, and then we'll have a year of action leading up to a second summit, as it's planned now, um, in December 2022. The first one is expected to be virtual. The second, hopefully, will be in person. I think is a very important opportunity, among many other things, to demonstrate new forms of democratic solidarity. One of the things that we've seen uh, globally and broadly speaking is that now emboldened authoritarian powers are really networking far more than they had in the past, and they have their own forms of unity. It's not seamless, it's not perfect, but if you compare the situation today with a decade ago, there's far more cooperation at the ideas level, at the operational level, and certainly in terms of um, having a shared consciousness as how to approach issues and their preferences within these rule-based bodies. And so um, Russia will work with Kazakhstan and Azerbaijan, for example, in the OSCE context. China and Russia will work with a host of other countries within the 
um, UN system to advance their preferences. And it's so important for us to recall that the authoritarians have strong preferences at home. They seek to sideline independent voices. They systematically censor views uh, both in uh, traditional media context, but also online with increased digital acumen of voices that don't uh, meet the paramount powers preferences at home. And the fact of the matter is they bring elements of that sensibility and those preferences beyond their borders today in ways that have become increasingly evident. So it should come as no surprise that when the Chinese authorities, the Russian authorities, the Saudi authorities, and many others engage in these international fora, their views, the government's views, are animated by uh, sidelining views that they don't feel comfortable with and working hard to prevent participation, especially of civil society. A recent article published in the Journal of Democracy that I allude to in the Just Security piece by Ranasu Inboden does this detailed dissection of how the Chinese authorities work so diligently within the UN context to block applications from civil society who are seeking consultative status in the UN's NGO committee. And it just speaks to the um, profound dedication that these authoritarian regimes have to sidelining independent voices and thought. And I think the democracies have to reflect on what we need to do to make sure that those voices are heard, both at the country level, but also at the regional and um, other supranational bodies, because this test is going to become even tougher with time because the autocrats are so committed to see their vision through. Yeah, there is a bit of paradox, or there is a big paradox, that the nationalists of the world unite today under one banner, and they use the, all the digital communication tools, to, and not only to to coordinate and, and come uh, together. Why while it seems uh, sometimes the democracies have problems of, of getting together and getting along. But I think it's what you said, this level of civil society is to the advantage of, of democracies. And to my mind, it's a test of, of any institutional and seriousness of any institutional um, initiative, whether it includes and involves the civil society participation and consultation process, or whether it prefers to do much more uh, autocratic version of, of the world order. Wouldn't you agree? I, I do. I think, Wojtek, you know, what we're really talking about is that these authoritarian powers do not want uh, to be um, consulted or don't want to consult with civil society at home. They work so hard to make sure that is not possible by jailing, harassing, killing um civil society voices who might challenge them. And I think we see this sensibility being uh, delivered into the international bodies and regional bodies that are properly seeking to have non-governmental participation in these very complex decisions, uh, including but not limited to how technology will be shaped in the future. And on this point, I think the one of the big challenges for the community of democratic states is to make sure that the rule setting for emerging technologies is done in accordance with and is animated by liberal democratic norms and values rather than the sorts of vision that's coming out of Moscow and Beijing. <laughs>